I've written damaged people, but never so damaged that they are unnecessarily cruel and mean. I've joked before that I've tried to write a bad boy, and then he keeps turning around and doing something nice. I'm Michael Tamblin, CEO of Rakuten Kobo. We make e-readers and apps, and we sell e-books and audiobooks all over the world. And we do it because we love reading, and we want to make reading lives better. One of the best parts of the work that we do is that we get to talk with authors about their books, as well as the books that shaped them as writers and as readers. Welcome to Kobo and Conversation. My guest today is Julia Quinn, best-selling author of the Bridgerton series. Starting with The Duke and I, it's the story, really a set of linked stories, each about a member of the Bridgerton family, and all of whom love one another fiercely. And of course, it's the basis for the Netflix series, titled simply Bridgerton, but it also spirals out from there to other series with related families, atrocious musical performances, multiple epilogues, making her one of the reigning queens of Happily Ever After. She has won just about every Romance Writing Award there is, is a member of the Romance Writers of America Hall of Fame, has been on the New York Times bestseller list 15 times last time I checked. Julia Quinn, welcome to Kobo. Hi, thank you for having me. To kick this off, and to help you and our listeners understand why this is an important interview to me, is it okay if I tell you a little story? Yeah. Okay. When we were first getting Kobo started back in 2010 and 2011, two very important things happened. The first was that we realized, and it's obvious now, but it wasn't then, how important romance was going to be as a category and how easily romance readers were making this jump from print to ebooks. And although I had been a bookseller for a long time, it wasn't a category that I knew a lot about, which seemed like a problem considering that the success of the enterprise now depended on us making a lot of romance readers as happy as they possibly could be. But it was solved by the second important thing that happened, which was that I got engaged to a fantastic woman. See, it's a love story. A lawyer, an advocate for seniors named Laura Watts, who's now my wife, Laura Tamblin Watts. She moved across the country for me from Vancouver to Toronto. And as a West Coast person yourself, you know that that never happens. And as the moving truck was pulling up, she took me aside and said, okay, you're going to see some things today, and how you react to them is probably going to determine the happiness of our relationship. And so the first thing that came out was furniture, which was good. We needed furniture. The second was about 150 pairs of shoes, and they were seriously good shoes. And I just installed 100 feet of closet space, so as long as I didn't need any for myself, that was going to be fine. The third was about 40 boxes of romance novels. And I turned to her and said, we need to talk. And she was instantly ready to throw down and defend her reading preferences. So I quickly followed it up with, I need to know as much as possible, as quickly as possible about romance writers and romance writing. Can you help me? And she looked at me very appraisingly and said, maybe if you give me the next 60 days of your reading life, and if you do exactly as I tell you, I might be able to turn you into a not-half-bad romance reader. And so she made me a romance crash course. Historical, modern, Scottish, Western, paranormal, Eloisa James and Lisa Kleepas and Nora Roberts, Mary Bullock and you know, Sarah McLean, 60 days. 
But the very first book she gave me to read, the one that started it off, was a Bridgerton novel by Julia Quinn. <laughs> this story is everything. Oh my gosh. I can't even tell you how hard it was for me not to interrupt you and be like, oh my gosh, that's amazing. This is incredible. <laughs> Now, oddly, it wasn't the first one. I think it was the third. It was Romancing Mr. Bridgerton about Colin and Penelope. That's the fourth, actually, but yeah. The fourth, thank you. Okay, and I almost messed up the curriculum because I then wanted to start the next one or go back to the first through third ones. Mm -hmm. But it was my introduction to the families, to the Bridgertons, and the Featherstones, and the Smythe Smiths, and to Lady Whistledown, and everyone in their orbit. And so I just off the bat wanted to thank you for that, because that was the best possible introduction to the genre that I could possibly have. Well, I'm, I'm thinking maybe I could take credit for your marriage. I mean, if that hadn't gone well, who knows what would have... Totally. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. I can so see the scene with her being like, all right, we're going to have a showdown right now, you know, because yeah. every romance reader has been questioned on her taste at some point. So that is awesome. We have a lot to talk about the books, the show, living with an epidemiologist husband during a pandemic, the graphic novel with your sister. But because we're both about writing and reading lives, let's go back to young Julie. Mm -hmm. Do you remember the first book that really grabbed you as you were growing up? First? I don't know. I mean, I know I collected the Bobsy Twin series in hardcover. They had these lavender heart covers. And part of the reason I collected that was that my, because my older sister collected Nancy Drew and I had to have my own thing. And Nancy Drew was like the all yellow covers like that. That was yellow. Yes. And we would, we lived about two hours away from our grandparents and we would go visit them from time to time. And they would always give my sister and me 10 bucks. That was, you know, a $10 bill. That was the, that was the gift. And then we would get home and we would always beg my mother to stop at Caldors, which was this um, kind of discount department store that was in our town. And they had a book section and the, the Nancy Drew and the Bobsy Twin books sold for $2 each. So we could each get five books and my mom would then pay the tax, which was nice, which I think came to 75 cents each. And so we would always say, you know, we couldn't even go home. We'd say, mom, you have to stop at Caldors. You have to stop at Caldors. And we would, you know, get the five books and, 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 I remember it was as much about the reading of those as the collecting them too, because they were numbered and they matched and they were beautiful and they were just th these things to covet. So that was definitely something really early on I loved. I loved those Bobsy Twin books and I don't know what happened to them. And, and there was like this mystery too. There were like 10 books that were not available. I'm sure there was some sort of weird rights issue. Now that I'm in publishing, I, I understand this, but it was like the mystery of what happened in like numbers 23 to 32 or something like that. They were part of a, a sub rights deal that only had them in the UK and... <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? And like occasionally I would see hints of something somewhere. I mean, there's no internet, so I don't know where I see pictures of these where you could see them with older covers, but they weren't available with the new covers. And, you know, gosh, I haven't thought about this mystery for so long. And now I'm going to have to like, I'm probably going to end up on eBay collecting Bobsy Twin books now. I just going to have to do it. You can thank me for that. <sighs> so your mother was supporting this. Family of readers? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Family readers. Absolutely. Everybody? Everybody's a reader. So when did romance make its way into your reading consciousness? You know, I, I know that there was this one time I was at my grandmother's house and she had a subscription to Good Housekeeping. And Good Housekeeping would uh, publish condensed versions of novels that have, you know, it, it, inside the pages. And like the first four pages were on a different 
stock of paper kind of wasn't glossy so you could find it easily and they would print it with some sort of you know illustration and then it'd be like you know continue on page 179 and then you'd keep reading and i'm pretty sure i read a kathleen woodowitz novel i mean a very shortened version of a kathleen woodowitz novel in good house gaming at one point and i think that may have been the first but i also read a ton of victoria holt and in every in Carnation that she had, and there's Victoria Holt and Philip um, Carr and Jean Plaid. She wrote so many books, and those I would get out at the library. Um, and I would, I was a walker at school. I would walk to and from school because we lived too close for school buses. And the library was on the way home, so I would go there all the time, and you know, see which ones they had. I, I don't ever recall putting a hold on a book. Somehow, it never occurred to me to do that. I would just sort of, you know, get there and be like, did somebody return? You know, Bride <laughs> and Dragon, or you know. So I definitely read all those too. So I, yeah. And you were also a Sweet Valley High fan. Okay, so I actually read what's called Sweet Dreams, which was a little bit different than Sweet Valley High. Oh, okay, okay. I mean, I, I read the Sweet Valley Highs. I liked them okay, but I was really more into the Sweet Dreams. And what was the, not being a Sweet Dreams fan myself, what is the difference between the two? Well, Sweet Dreams was, a, they were not connected books. Each one was its own little teenage romance novel. So it was kind of like, you know, the Harlequin or Mills and Boone of teenage romance wars. Sweet Valley High had this whole world and, you know, these twins, one was good, one was evil and went on forever. So that was more of like, you know, Beverly Hills 90210. And it kind of makes sense that I would have gravitated toward The Sweet Dreams because each book has a happy ending. And with Sweet Valley High, it was more of an ongoing thing. And, and I like my happy endings. You were propelled by the combination of Sweet Dreams and Sweet Valley High to Harvard, where you studied art history. Was that? Was that yes. <laughs> it, it does. The, the causal link is so clear. It makes such sense when you say it like that. Was art history something that you were going to with a particular goal in mind? No, it was, I kind of fell into it. And it was, it was actually history of architecture. It just, art history is kind of the name of the majors and fine arts. And what happened was, you know, at some point in my career there, I trying to figure out what I wanted to do in life as one does then. And I got into my head that I, I thought I might want to go into architecture. And so I started taking some classes uh, toward that. And I think it was my sophomore year, I was taking a design class and I was also taking a history of architecture class. And by the end of the year, I realized I, I was did not enjoy the design class that much, but I love the history of architecture class. And it was just this really interesting way of looking at history, you know, through the built environment. So, you know, people, they hear I've majored in art history, they think I'm going to be able to talk really, you know, intelligently about the great masters. And I, I cannot, I'm afraid, you know, perhaps, you know, better than the average person on the street, but not much. But um, it was really more about buildings and, and, and urban planning and how that built environment affects our world. And that's what I was really interested in. And I never, ever intended to do anything with it. That's kind of, you know, the beauty and the conceit of going to Harvard that I think it's expected there that you went to Harvard, you should, you know, you're qualified, you can do something, the name should be enough. So they don't actually have any what, what we'd call practical degrees. It's all, I guess, except for like engineering, which I wasn't going to go into. It's all arts and sciences. You can't do marketing or pre-law or you know, business as an undergraduate. So I was like, well, you know, in some ways this is more practical than other people because I could become a curator, I guess. That's right. I don't have to become a philosopher, which is yes. one of the other options on, on the table. <laughs> when did the switch flip for you from reader to writer, from somebody who loved reading to somebody who thought, I can do this? Well, you actually inadvertently hinted at it earlier when you mentioned, you know, moving on from Sweet Dreams and Sweet Valley High to Harvard. 
And, and let me back you up. And there actually is, you, you were laughing about it, but there actually is a connection. Excellent. I'm ready. What happened was when I was about 13, I was reading Sweet Dreams and such. And I was, my parents were divorced. I was, I was at my dad's place for the summer and he, he's a bit of an intellectual and he was looking at my reading material and it was trying so hard not to put it down, but you could tell that he really thought I should be reading, oh, I don't know, um, Conrad or something, you know, and which of course is what every, as teenagers do, <laughs> as every thir- you know, every 13 year old girl wants to read Heart of Darkness over the summer. So you know, he came up and he said, you know, well, why are you reading this? You know, tell me about it. Tell me what you like about it. So I started trying to tell him what I liked about it. And he, he said, okay, but you know, how, how does it enrich you? What do you get out of it? And I said, uh, you know, I was trying to figure this out. I was not prepared for this question. And I said, well, I'm, I'm learning vocabulary words. And he said, oh, okay. Well, can you point to a word or two that are in that book that you didn't already know? And uh, this is where I say, reader, I could not. And, you know, I don't know whether this says more about my vocabulary at age 13 or just what was in the books. There, you know, there, there are many great qualities to a Sweet Dreams romance, but an extensive vocabulary was not one of them, I have to admit. And so I, you know, I, I couldn't do that one. So I said, uh, well, I'm reading these because I'm doing research, because I'm going to write one. At which point he said, oh, he said, okay. And so that night, he sat me down in his office and we were one of the only people around who had a home computer. This was like 1983. Um, it was a, this, uh, Oh, it was an Osborne, I remember. The screen, uh, no, you can't see me, but I'm making a very small screen with my fingers. It was, you know, maybe eight-inch screen, tops, diagonal. With the, and with the green letters, yeah. With the green letters, black, you know, and the blinking cursor. We used WordStar, which was an old uh, word processing program. He sat me down. I, I started typing. And... He told me later, he was sure I was going to come back in a half hour or so and be like, well, give me the Conrad. And, um, but I just kept going and he came back in about three or four hours later and I'm still in there and I'm typing and I'm writing my story. And I ended up over the course of two summers, I wrote a novel, which I then submitted to Sweet Dreams. And I, I wrote, which what I still believe is a very, very good uh, cover letter and saying, because I'm at this point, I think I was 16. I said, because I'm a 16 year old, you know, I think you'll find this book to be more authentic, more, you know, whatever. And I was rejected so fast that I know that there's no way they ever read it because I know a thing or two about publishing now. Nobody gets rejected in a week and a half. It just doesn't happen. That speaks to a certain efficiency on the slush pile. That's somebody was on that. I know. And so I'm sure nobody read it. And, and I still maintain it was of equal or higher quality than a lot of stuff they were doing. But so here's where we get to the point. Fast forward another year or so, and I'm applying to college. And, and I was kind of demoralized enough by this that I never sent it anywhere else. But now I'm applying to college and I get to a question on my application and it says, tell us about a book that has been especially meaningful in your life. So I wrote about the book I wrote. And I am convinced to this day that that is how I got into Harvard because it had to have been the only thing that set me apart from other people. I mean, the application pool is filled with people who score well and get grades and work hard. But I think I was the only one who wrote a teenage romance novel. And I'm convinced that's how I got in. So there you go. Your writing continued through school Mm -hmm. and you made a decision at a, at a certain point that you wanted to study medicine 
And my understanding is that you wrote novels as a break from studying science. Is that like, you know, something to do in your off hours? Is that correct? Sort of. What happened was, you know, it, it was in my senior year, I decided that maybe I want to do medicine. And it kind of joked, it's really because, you know, who knows how to get a job, right? I don't know how to get a job, but I knew how to apply to school. I'd done that. So I was like, oh, then I'll apply to medical school. You know, it, this is a very narrow worldview. But I, 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 and I also sort of rediscovered a love of science toward the end of my, my senior year. I was this classic case of the girl who thought she shouldn't be into science because it wasn't girlish, you know, which is, is a horrible, horrible thing. And, and hopefully we're getting past that. But um, I, I rediscovered a love of science. And so I thought, oh, you know, actually, this would be pretty cool. But then because I had majored in art history, I hadn't taken these science courses that you have to take in order to even apply to medical school. So I spent the next two years taking these courses and taking organic chemistry and physics and stuff like that. And because I was taking these courses, I couldn't hold down a, a full-time job. I mean, it would, it would have been impossible. So I, you know, I was, I was working you know, uh, as a fundraiser for various charities and stuff like that, which doesn't, it's not terribly taxing mentally. And so in my free time, I go, okay, well, I'll work on this novel that I had kind of started between junior and senior year of college. And I, so I worked on that and worked on that. And then in May of 1994, I was accepted to medical school and I got my first book deal all basically in the same month. And it, um, it was an exciting month, it possibly one of the most exciting months of my life until this past month, which we'll get to, which has been pretty incredible. <laughs> yes. But uh, I ended up deferring medical school for a couple years to pursue the writing. And then I had like a little crazy crisis of, of confidence. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm not qualified for anything. Everybody I know is going to graduate school and I better go to medical school. And, and so I did that for about three months and then I withdrew. I, I said, this is not right for me. And I, I have not looked back. And and as you mentioned earlier, I, I am married to a doctor, so I know exactly what I'm missing. The road not traveled is right in front of you all the time. Oh. Yeah. The road not traveled is, I mean, I can stick my toe into it at <laughs> any time. And um, he's actually not an epidemiologist. He's an infectious disease specialist, which is oh. not quite the same thing. And uh, that particular road this particular year has been particularly brutal. No kidding. Yeah. And my understanding is that you sent your that first manuscript to your mom. Did she give you some feedback on that? I did. She did. She, you know, she said she read it. And, and this is, you know, back in the day when you would have to print it out and put it in the mail. And I mean, it was a big deal to send a manuscript out. And she, I was living across the country from her. And uh, she read it. And she said, wow, I, I, you know, I never knew you were such a good writer. And she goes, but you know, it's, it's, it's not Judith McNaught. <laughs> like, okay, mom, thank you. Um, and she categorically denies this now. She she has no recollection. But I mean, I I would never. How could I make that up? I, I could not make that up. But to be fair, to her was was Judith McNaught the gold standard to which all other probably yeah romance novels should be judged. Yeah, probably okay. So like. That may have just been an unattainable bar to clear at the time. It certainly was for my first novel. I yeah. I'm doing my best to give your mom the benefit of the doubt. It's okay. We we she has been forgiven. She and my dad too. Both of them are now my biggest fans. Excellent. Yeah, there are other things for which I may not forgive them, but not that. Not that. <laughs> yeah, you don't just write individual books you write series and as booksellers we love that. Thank you very much. Always good to have a series to sell. Before the Bridgerton series began, you wrote, I, I think, seven books in five years, which 
in itself is impressive as output. And there was the Splendid Trilogy, and then two books of the Linden Sisters, and two books of the Agents of the Crown, which I really liked. Oh, thank you. It made me wonder how a series gets started when it's the first book in a two-book arc like the Linden Sisters or the first book in an eight-book series like Bridgerton's. Do you know what you're getting into when you start that first book? Almost never. I mean, some authors do. Don't get me wrong. I have, you know, one of the lovely things about romance is that you, you tend to know a lot of other authors in your field. And so I have talked to other authors and there are as many ways to do this as there are people. And even for me, each one is a little bit different. I'm thinking like, and also I wrote those books so long ago, I'm not sure I can actually fully recall. I know with the Bridgerton series, I did not set out to write an eight book series. I, you know, originally I thought it was going to be three and my editor said, no, just make it two because whenever somebody writes a trilogy, the first book's exciting and then they save the most interesting character for last. And then the second one's kind of like, eh, you know, it's... <laughs> So then, but then I really argued for the three and then four, we could, at some point, then the series took off and then they were like, no, 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 do eight, do eight, do eight. It'll be great. So that would really was flying by the seat of my pants. I was not planned at all. And, and in fact, there was places where I realized I kind of wrote myself into a hole. Like I really, at one point I said, oh my gosh, I'm going to have three 28 year old spinsters in a row. What am I going to do? And so I casually decided and like mentioned that Francesca, who's the heroine of the sixth book you know, had gotten married and widowed. And I didn't even say anything other than that. And then, of course, I get up to her book and I'm like, oh, crap, I got to figure out what happened to her. <laughs> How do I do this now? But, but it was, I'm glad I did because I just, I needed to get it set up so that it could be a different type of story than the rest. But I, and for most books, I'm, I'm not, a, I don't have them super plotted out. I may, with a series, know who is going to star in it, but I haven't figured out the stories. Looking back now over a number of books, are there characteristics that you see for a Julia Quinn female protagonist or a Julia Quinn male protagonist? Like if we lined up six young women in their first season or six dukes chafing against the responsibility of their titles from six different authors, how would we pick a Julia Quinn protagonist out of that lineup? Well, they, they definitely have a sense of humor. They absolutely have a sense of humor and they are even, you know, with there and none of them are perfect. They all have flaws, but they are at heart. I think good people you'd want to be friends with. I've written damaged people, but never so damaged that they are unnecessarily cruel and mean. I've joked before that I've tried to write a bad boy and then he keeps turning around and doing something nice. And I like reading books with bad boy heroes, but I just, I can't seem to to do it. And, you know, and I guess it makes sense. I, I married the ultimate nice guy. I mean, he goes to work every day to save humanity. I mean, he's, you know, Mr. Feminist. I, I don't, you know, what else can I do? But yeah, I think just ultimately good people with a sense of humor who are, are very loyal to the people they love. I think that is at its heart, you know, where they start. When you were first starting to write, or or even now, were you thinking, these are things that in this genre I want to do differently, or here's what I want to do that's going to make this interesting to me? Yeah, I I do know. I remember when I was writing my first book, there, there was one thing that I did set out, I very consciously thought about, and that was that I wanted to depict female friendship. I felt that at least then, and I don't think this is the case now, but then it was lacking in the genre. 
I mean, and I'm sure you could point to several cases where it was, but as an overall thing, you just didn't see it that much. Uh, you saw some male friendship, but you know, it was very easy to sort of, you know, pit the, the heroine against, you know, some mean girl or something. And, and I understand in, in many ways where these things come from in order to create interesting characters. One of the best ways to do that is to isolate them in some way. So you, you know, you take away their family, you take away their friendships and, um, and that can really create a dynamic and interesting character. And I, I've certainly done that, but I just, at that point, I was like, I, I want her to have a friend. Let's give her a friend. And, it, and that case, it turned out to be her cousin, but I was like, let's give her a best friend. I mean, don't we all want a best friend? Why not? And, and so that's something that you've seen a lot of in my books, people with, you know, some good, healthy relationship outside of the romantic one. Um, you don't, it's not everywhere, but I, I really, I just really wanted to show that, like, be like, hey, you know what, we can, we can, women can be friends. We're not all like these backstabbing whatevers, you know, why not, you know, the, the heroine doesn't have to be lifted onto a pedestal in, you know, contrast to some awful woman. She can be lifted to the pedestal because she's friends with a great woman. So that's, that's something I definitely set out to do. And all along, I knew I wanted to have books with humor in it because that's what I like to read. But I think that's also just my natural writing voice. I don't know that I could write anything that didn't have some humor in it. And one of the, the, as you say that, it helps to explain one of the things that I've noticed in the books, which is that these friendships, A, allow for more dialogue. Like you have this, you know, fantastic kind of crackling dialogue between different characters, but also a lot of what would otherwise be interior monologue gets to be said out loud. People get to talk about what they're feeling. They get to talk about what they're worried about. Like it comes out more because they have someone to talk to, which is which is kind of nice. The Bridgerton series started with the Duke and I in 2000 and is the story of this extremely tight-knit family of eight alphabetically named siblings, each book telling the story of one family member's romantic story. And Eight, let's be clear, is not a bad number of books for a series. But this one has also spiraled out into other families, the Rokesby family, the Smith Quartet, the Lady Whistledown novellas. Did you get to the end of eight books and think, I'm just not ready to leave these people yet? No, I got to the end of eight books and thought, I'm done for a while. Mm -hmm. I really needed to sort of set it apart. And I purposely didn't go back there for a while. And it was very odd. I remember the first thing that I did that was completely separate were was the two Dukes of Wyndham, a duet of books. There was a book that came out in between, but that one had actually been <laughs> at least half written before. Um, so that was the first thing that was entirely new. And it was a very kind of weird and scary thing in a way. I'd be like, this isn't, you know, I can't fall back on the rest of this world that I've created, but I, I think I needed actually to, to step aside for a while. But the, you know the Bridgertons were always there in some respect. I ended up writing these second epilogues. These you know because readers would come to me. They say, well, what happened to so and so? Did did she ever find the diamonds? And did this person have a baby? And what happened when he found the letters? And I would just say <laughs> I don't know. I will get back to you. <laughs> it would be horrified. You know, be like, be, well, I wasn't even prepared to do that. I, I finished the book. I'm like, the book's done. I you know I I'm. I, I'm not one of these authors who lives and breathes her characters all the time. And so when I finish a book, I finish the book. And honestly, I don't think a great deal about those characters again, unless I'm bringing them back as secondary characters to support another story, which I do from time to time. And, you know, readers, I, I think some readers were really upset about this. I think they, you know, in their minds, I, you know, fell asleep dreaming of these characters every night. 
And so I would write these extra stories like, okay, well here, we can revisit these characters, you know, a couple of them were like 30 years later and some were, you know, five days later, but here's what happened. And so those were actually, that was, that was a lot of fun to write these. They're, they're about 30 pages long. And in addition to maybe, you know, answering a question that somebody had or just, you know, being kind of indulgent, I was able to do some things that were a little different for me. I wrote one in the first person. I got right, you know, the, the only time I've really written an intimate scene between a couple that has been married for a long time, as opposed to, you know, still in those throes of courtship, which was very, very different. So yes, yeah, so those were a lot of fun too. And, and it's obviously writing something that's 30 pages long is very different than writing a whole novel. With these series, as they start to come together and you're, you're trying to figure out the next one, the next book, is that an organic process as you find characters and situations that you're interested in? Or when you're in the middle of, of a big series, is there a giant map on the wall somewhere in your house in Seattle with pins and strings and lines and everything all mapped out? Yeah, any map with pins and strings usually has to do with uh, the COVID epidemic. But um, <laughs> <laughs> no, I, 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 I'm not, uh, in terms of like my overall career, I'm definitely not a plotter. I've talked to authors and they'll be like, oh yeah, I'm going to write this book and that book and this book and that one. And I'm like, I don't even know what I'm going to do next. You know, I, I rarely, and, and that's why I end up taking off too much time off between projects as well, because I'm sort of like, ah, what am I going to do? It, it's much more of an organic, but organic seems to even imply that it like can be counted on in some way. It just <laughs> naturally flows. Yeah. It, it, <laughs> It's like a rusty machine. <laughs> yeah, like climbing to get my head above water with this and be like, I need an idea. Looking across the the genres of writing, romance is one that has traditions. It has tropes and forms that both readers are conscious of as they're picking the book up, writers are conscious of as they're writing. And that's not in any way unique to romance. You know, ask a crime novelist about you know, traditions and tropes. Uh, but I'm interested in your relationship to the tradition of romance. Do you have a sense of how far you can push and pull the form? Is that something that's interesting to you? Or is it like the water that you swim in? Very interesting question. I would not describe myself as a writer who, you know, pushes the envelope a lot in romance. I'm really more interested in how creative I can be within it. But that said, you know, as, as I say that, I think, well, actually, I have done a few things that are kind of different, but it's more um, structural than story-wise, if that makes sense. And, and that, to me, has helped keep it a little fresh for me. So, for example, I, I mentioned the series I wrote a while back called The Two Dukes of Wyndham, and it's two books. And what was different about it, uh, especially from a writing standpoint, is that each one has its own romance, so it has its own internal story, but they share the same external plot, which is who is the true Duke of Wyndham. And so you have scenes that take place in both books, but from different points of view. And I realized as I was trying to get this set up that the only way to write it so that the second book and the characters wouldn't be completely dependent on what I chose to do for the first would be to write them simultaneously. So I wrote those two novels at the same time, which was completely fascinating. I loved it. And I will also never do it again. But for me, that is how I like to like elbow the edge of the envelope and, and things like that, rather than, you know, shaking up the story in a big way, because, you know, with romance, I mean, I, I want that happy ending. In a speech that you gave to the 
Romance Writers of America in 2015, you said that one of the most important things to realize as a writer is that you have to accept you can't please everyone all the time. How long did it take you to figure that out? Oh, I'm still figuring that out to some degree. You know, and it's not just a writer, I think in life. Especially, you know, as a woman, we we want, you know, we're trying to please everybody. And 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 that's I'm that type of person. I'm the type of person who, you know, I want people to like me. And if I if I love something, I want everybody to love it. You know, it's like when I and it's you know, even if it's not my thing, it's like if I find a favorite book, I mean, but I want you to like my favorite book too. Um, and, and that's who I am. And so it is, you know, it's a constant difficult struggle. And and it's tough at times too, because as you become more of a public figure, which has happened with Bridgerton, the Netflix series a little bit, you know, suddenly like people are, you know, they're not just picking apart your books, they're picking apart you in, in, in some respect. And so it's really kind of have to remember, okay, you know what? I can't please everybody all the time. And I just have to, I don't want to only please myself. It's not just about that. I'm not, because I'm not writing for myself. I am writing for my readers. So you got to kind of find some happy medium. And I have a few benchmarks that I have adopted as signs of success. So for example, for every book that I've written, somebody has told me that it is absolutely the best book I've written. And somebody's told me that it is without a doubt the worst. And for me, that's a really good sign. That means that I'm doing something right because one of my big goals is not to write the same book over and over again and not to have like that one book that outshines everything. And, and sure, there's some books that more people mark as their favorite than others. But you know, I, I like that. I like, you know, some people saying, no, 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 that's not her best book. This one is, you know, and so, no, 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 this week. So anyway. But you do have this very engaged, passionate audience and readers reach out to you all the time. Mm -hmm. And you have lots of readers, so this is the very definition of a high-class problem. But <laughs> how do you think about that back and forth? And the what are the kinds of things that they tell you when they reach out? Some of it are just, you know, oh, I love the book. Some very you know, basic stuff. But, you know, sometimes you'll get stuff that's very meaningful. People will say how much these books meant to them during a difficult time in their life, which I think, you know, when you write books with happy endings, Perhaps you hear more than the people writing, you know, dark Scandinavian crime dramas, which are also wonderful books, but maybe not what you need to carry you through a difficult time in your life. So I hear that. Another thing I hear, which was very startling at first, but also very gratifying, is I've heard from women who have said to me that before they found romance novels, they were functionally illiterate. And it was only when they actually found books that they wanted to read that they began to say, women, I, I want to read this. I want to do this. And they really learned how to read. And that to me is incredibly powerful. And that was something that was, that really kind of humbled me. Like I just sort of lay down for a while being like, oh my gosh. But in truth, my readers, I mean, it's really a spectrum. I'll hear from, you know, the women who've said things like that. And then I'll hear from people who are professors at MIT. It's really all across the board um, where they read. And so I just, it's, it's kind of nice to see the, the variety and the diversity within the readership is just so much fun. But they will like they will let you know if they don't like something. Like if something has, you know, if a character hasn't landed properly for them, they're gonna tell you. They will. Yeah. And 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 when they're disappointed, they're always profoundly disappointed. It's never just plain disappointment. But I, I don't see as much of that, I think, anymore because I took the email link off my website so people can no longer email me. And that wasn't why I removed the email link. It, it was more because 
I, it was taking me so long to answer that I was afraid I just wasn't even going to get to some. And I would rather not get the email than not answer it. So um, I, you know, I used to tell people I'm on Instagram, I'm on Facebook. I don't necessarily answer everything on Instagram, but if you post to my Facebook wall, I will answer you. And, and maybe just, and some people will post their disappointments on the wall, but I think a lot of people don't feel comfortable pointing, posting their <laughs> profound disappointment on the wall. So that's good. <laughs> so maybe I'm just seeing less of it now, but you know, we do sometimes get in political discussions over there. Not much. I try to stay out of it, but you know, anybody who's over on the Facebook wall knows where I stand, I think. Yeah. And readers, the, the, I, I think they're great. I think I would not be a writer or I'd have difficulty being a writer in an age where you don't have that communication with readers. I, I write because I want to be read. I'm not just writing for the sake of writing. It's not just for me. I really like knowing that, that these words are being received somewhere. As a bookseller, one of the reasons I love talking to authors of romance and science fiction and crime, and it's something that you've talked about before, is that you know you're in a marketplace. You know, you know the romance market, and over time, you've gained more experience of how that marketplace works. How do you, as, as a writer, balance that knowledge of the market that you're in and the things that the market wants? versus trusting your instinct as a writer and going with your gut on the kinds of stories you want to tell? I'm kind of fortunate in that what I have wanted to write has always been fairly squarely within the marketplace. Mm -hmm. You know, I really gravitated toward a Regency set historical, which is what I like to read, which has, you know, for the last 25 years been one of the most, or if not the most popular, like settings within historical romance. So I, you know, I never really had to, you know, face down this big question of, do I go this way or that way, you know, based on the marketplace. So I don't, I, yeah, I, I think that hasn't really been a difficult question for me. I think mm -hmm. I tend to be squarely within it, which is extremely lucky, frankly. You published your first book in 1995. Mm -hmm. How has romance as a kind of as a genre changed in that time? Are there new themes or new expectations that you have either brought into your writing or you felt like you had to look at as the times change? You know, the first big change I think that I really saw was just a move towards a lot more explicit uh, intimate scenes in romance, which I just sort of sailed past. I kind of am writing at the same level of sensuality I always have been, which is somewhere in the middle. I always tell people, you know, I don't shut the bedroom door, but I'm also not 50 shades of gray. It's, you know, it's somewhere in the middle. I, you know, it was funny. I do have one book, When He Was Wicked, which I think is a little bit spicier than the rest, but that was what the story called for. And it was kind of funny. I remember reading some review where somebody saying like, I wonder if her publisher was pressuring her to make her books hotter. And I was like, no, it just, that's what the story was. The, but the biggest change, which is more recent and, and still has a ways to go is that the, it's becoming a lot more inclusive and a lot more diverse. And that is wonderful. Um, and, and I'm ashamed to say it's something I didn't really notice. For a while. I mean, it just, because it didn't affect me. Um, you know, I, I knew I had, you know, author friends who were black and they were writing and I assumed everything was fine because they were there, but you know, I had no clue to really the extra hurdles that they were having to jump over just to, you know, get their foot in the door and how many people were discouraged because they just couldn't be heard. And I think, you know, things are opening up now. And again, it's still not where it needs to be, but it is getting a lot better. And so one of the things that I've been doing as an author or trying to is to shine a light at on some of these books 
that people might not find otherwise. Because that's, I mean, that's a age old problem within book selling and, and being an author is like, how do you, how do people find your books? You know, I, I actually worked in a bookstore for a while and, you know, I can remember, okay, well, let's take this book and put it up front and maybe someone will see it. I mean, if you bury it, you know, if nobody sees the book, how are they going to buy it? So I've been really trying to like show people, hey, you know, there's this great book, you know, from like my friend Vanessa Riley, she writes books set in the Regency with characters of color. And I want people to know that this exists. You can try it. I'm not saying you have to read it, but you should know it's there and know that it's an option. And, and, and I hope you'll give it a try because it's a great book. So I've been trying to use my spotlight to shine a light on other authors. And I've been doing that for several years now. And, and you know, obviously not just authors of color, but, you know, everyone just, it's been kind of a fun thing to be able to take this, you know, spot that I suddenly have in this world and be like, hey, like, look at this book. This is really cool. And this creates a great segue to Bridgerton, the the TV series. Mm-hmm. When did you first know it was going to get made? So it was almost precisely four years ago. I was sitting in, in Starbucks and I got a call from my agent. He said, have you heard of Shonda Rhimes? And I said, yes. <laughs> and he said, well, I got this phone call. And, and we, were, we were just like, wow, you know, who knew? And so you know, really didn't get my hopes up at first because, you know, I know authors have had their books optioned and it's, you know, much more likely to get your book optioned and then have nothing happen than to get your book optioned and have something actually get made. But all along the way, it kept, I kept looking at being like, it really feels like this is going to happen. This is, seems like this is actually going to happen. This is, and it just kept moving forward. And it just, it's this wonderful story of everything going right. And, uh, you know, it, it took a while because, you know, first we had to do the contract and then she was moving from Shondaland. Well, she's still at Shondaland, but then she was making her deal with Netflix. But yeah, it's, it's incredible. A few things jump out at us when we watch the show. Mm -hmm. The first is that it's gorgeous, Mm -hmm. like just sumptuously beautiful. When did you first get a hint of what it was going to look like, of how your world was going to show up on the screen? So before I even knew anything about the cast, I was given the name, the directors of the art director and the costume director. And so I was able to sort of do a little research on them and look at what they've done. And that's when I was, at which point I thought, oh my gosh, this is going to be incredible. I'm like these, these are, these are not fly by night people. These are people with incredible backgrounds and resumes. Yeah. So that was incredible. And then I feel like I'll keep saying incredible over and over again, but it's true. And then, you know, then they started announcing the cast and my head basically exploded. And that was the second thing that jumped out. And the one that I think got a lot of coverage when it was first released was an approach to casting that made for a much more diverse and interesting cast than the usual collection of pale faces we usually see in a story about the English aristocracy. Did you know that was in the works from early on? So, you know, I, it's Shondaland. So I knew they were going to be doing something more inclusive, but I wasn't necessarily sure how, I mean, there were, there are a number of ways you could have attacked it. You could have tweaked the stories and made the stories, you know, written a slightly different story. Um, you could have done true colorblind casting, which is not at all what it is. We much prefer to call it color conscious casting because there was a lot of thought that went into the casting and how, how it was done. But they found this kind of incredible in-between spot, which is, you know, this diverse cast, but reimagining the society in a way that is actually based on a very interesting historical nugget, which is that many people think that Queen Charlotte was of mixed race. Um, And this is something that historians have been debating for many, many years. And so the writers, and in particular, Chris Van Dusen, the showrunner, thought, well, what if, what if, 
this was just accepted then. Like no longer uh, this thing under debate, this nugget under debate, but what if this was accepted? And then what if she used her position to elevate other people of color within society? What would society look like at that point? And then they went on from there. And so I love that they created this slightly alternate reality, but based on something very real in history. And they just went from there. And I think it's, it's amazing. And, I, and, and the emotion I feel most of all actually is gratitude. Because, you know, I'm, I'm one person. I can only be as diverse as one person can be. But when you get this writer's room, and that's the other really important point. Everybody looks at the cast. But take a step back and look at the writer's room. The writer's room on Bridgerton was incredibly diverse in terms of uh, gender, sexual orientation, uh, race, religion, everything. It was the most incredibly diverse group. And so when you get all these people in, they can take the story that started with me, but they bring their imagination to it and their lived experiences. And they were able to expand it in a way that frankly, I by myself could not. And so I'm just incredibly grateful to them for doing that, for taking the story and, and helping to turn it into something where everyone can see themselves can put a, can see a piece of themselves in it and can look at it and say, yeah, I get a happy ending too. And I love that because I think everybody deserves a happy ending and everybody deserves to be able to see themselves in a happy ending. So I could not be happier. The first season was a huge hit. It got binge watch at my house over the course of maybe three days over the holidays. But much more importantly, a new story I saw just today is that it is now officially the biggest viewership of any Netflix series that's ever been made. So congratulations. That has to feel pretty good. Thank you. I think specifically it's it's the biggest debut. Okay. Saying. I don't know if it's all series, but the biggest debut. So we'll be precise. And does that mean we will get a second season? Yes, it was renewed. Was it just last week? But yes, it was renewed for a second season. And they say they're going to start filming this spring. I'm not involved with production issues, so I, I'm not sure mm -hmm. how they're going to make that happen, but I believe it if they say they will. And I have not seen any scripts yet. So because people are like, well, is this going to happen? Is that going to happen? And I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> but, you know, having written the source material, I can tell you that um, it's going to be really fun because I think we all are eager for Anthony to get his, his comeuppance in, you know. And that means you cannot answer the most important question I have this interview, which is whether we get to see an on-screen version of a Smythe Smith musicale. I don't know. I, I can tell you I have I have talked about that <laughs> with Chris Van Dusen. Um, we, you know, we have shared our mutual love for the Smythe Smiths, but I have no idea whether or when they could appear. And certainly, you know, they could, you know, not appear in season two and, you know, cross fingers, you know, we, that we get more, you know, they could come in down the road. So I don't know. But I mean, I don't, do we really want to listen to that? I mean, did you hear, we, we sort of got a, a taste of it when poor Prudence Featherington was singing. That is true. That was something to behold. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about your experience of this last year in the pandemic. I mean, you certainly have family member who is on the front lines of this, but I also talk to authors who some have become super productive, others are having trouble sitting down and getting things done. How has it been for you and your household? I have not been writing a lot. Uh, I've, I've been working on, well, you know, and some of it's for professional reasons. I've had different commitments with the show, you know, the, the time leading up to it and since. 
And I've also been uh, working on my next book coming out, you know, is actually a graphic novel, which I have co-done with my sister. And so there's the mat. But I think the biggest thing is that I have seen the toll that this pandemic has taken on my husband, who, as I said, is a, is a doctor who specializes in infectious diseases in Seattle, which was the very first deaths in the country. And his job has become so overwhelming that, you know, many respects, I've really kind of shifted into just caretaker mode and taking care of my family because, you know, it was, I I do have two children and their lives were disrupted in a huge way as well. And I just, just like, you know what, I'm incredibly fortunate that I am able to take some time off from work and just really focus on helping them. Um, and, And most specifically my husband, because, you know, he's just it's so difficult to actually explain how his job has changed, but he's still doing everything he was before. But now on top of that, he's giving interviews like you wouldn't believe because he's, he's very articulate. And so he's, I think he's given 200 interviews since the pandemic began, you know, many of them for local television, uh, some like CNN, BBC, all these things. And this is just on top of his job. It's not suddenly they're like, okay, now you're spokesperson. It's like, please do this in addition to all this. And then, you know, constant meetings of trying to explain to people, you know, okay, these are the protocols and this is why we do it. And, you know, so not necessarily talking to the patients, but talking to other health professionals being like, okay, this is how we are setting these things up. And then just also these really weird things, like somehow he ended up getting pulled in as the medical advisor to the PAC 12 college football conference, <laughs> like advising them on how to safely house and practice with their teams and you know and he's not even like a college football fan so we're sort of like what how did that happen and I think the NFL asked him too and he was just like I cannot do anymore so yeah I, around here it's really been a lot of focus on supporting him but because of all that I think in our house you know when Bridgerton did debut uh, to such success and it being such a happy show I mean yes we have all the drama whatever but it is at its core, something that makes people happy. I think it has given our household this like, you know, jolt of joy, which has been so incredibly wonderful. And, you know, so many people have said, you know, the timing of this was very fortuitous. It came along right when everybody needed it. But, you know, in in my house, I think we also really needed it too. Speaking of family, tell me about the project Miss Buttersworth and the Mad Baron that you're doing with your sister. Yes, this is so much fun. And and it kind of harkens back to when I was telling you, like for me, the way I like to push the envelope sometimes is to work with structure. And so this is a classic case of that in doing a graphic novel. And what happened was way back in It's in His Kiss, which is the seventh Bridgerton book, Hyacinth, the heroine of that story, would visit Lady Danbury, who show watchers will hopefully love. She's one of my favorite characters. She would go there once a week and read to her. And she was reading to her from this like over the top Gothic novel called Miss Butterworth and the Mad Baron, you know, where, you know, every chapter ends with this poor girl hanging from a cliff or being thrown off a cliff or getting, you know, both her legs are broken. She gets all all these things. And I had so much fun writing it that, you know, I ended up popping it into another novel. And then another one where suddenly like, you know, we end up revealing who the author is. And it was just this ongoing you know, book within a book that I had so much fun with. And then readers started asking me to write it. And I said, I can't do that. This is, it's really fun to write snippets and paragraphs, but I couldn't possibly write a whole novel of this. But then at that time, my, my younger sister was, you know, really kind of starting forth her career as a cartoonist. 
an illustrator and it occurred to me that it would make a really fun graphic novel. And, you know, she was really looking for a project too. And so we ended up doing it together and she did a lot more of the work than I did, but it is really fun. And I'm so excited for people to see it in August. It's, you know, it's still a romance, definitely a romance, but it's it's something totally different. And, and actually, you know, younger readers could be totally appropriate for younger readers too. There are talking pigeons, you know, so we definitely, we break the fourth wall in some places. It's, it's fun. It's really fun. If I'm not mistaken, a book within a book that also appears in another author's book, because I think it shows up in an Eloisa James novel as well, doesn't it? Probably. I think she asked me my permission to do that. I've done that before too. I actually had one of my, and I can't remember which book it is, but I had a character reading a book that was written by Elisa Kleypas, uh heroine too. We we have fun, yeah. you know, <laughs> we're all friends. We like to do that. Well, and I, I think I have seen a, a Julia Quiplet, I think show up in an Eloisa James novel next to Elisa Clampus. Yes, that would be true. <laughs> you have what seems to be this very fairly close connection to a to a circle of other romance writers. Who's in that circle? Like who are the people that you reach out to when you are either like struggling with the work or just needing the like emotional support to get to the next page? Gosh, that's so hard because I'm afraid I'm gonna leave someone out, but certainly Eloisa and Lisa my very closest friend in the world is Stephanie Sloan, who is a lesser known author, but like I've been friends with her since before she wrote Sarah McLean, Tessa Dare, Vanessa Riley. I, I, I know I'm forgetting people, but yeah, all these people. You can blame us and say that we cut them out in editing. Yes, they cut, if you didn't hear your name, they cut you out, <laughs> exactly. Are there authors out there who you are fascinated by who you just grab every time you see them on the shelves? Yeah. And you know, there are some romance authors who I can't understand why, you know, they're not more people are reading them. Like the, the, the one sort of unsung gem who I love is Julie Ann Long, who writes, uh, she's written a couple contemporary romances, but mostly historical romance. And her big series, which I think she has completed is called Pennyroyal Green. That's the name of a village or whatever, which is just fabulous. And I, you know, I thrust those books into everybody's hands I can. And those I think are really, really great. I mean, I love all the books by the people I mentioned. I have a couple, you know, outside of romance. I love one of my favorite books in the entire world is called The Last Days of Summer by Steve Kluger. I don't know if you know that one. That's, I love that book so much. It's an epistolary novel, which I, I adore. Oh, there's another great book that nobody knows about that I love so much. It's called Lost in Place, Growing Up Absurd in Suburbia by Mark Salzman. Did I get you? Did I find one you don't know? I do not know that one. Yes, you totally did. Yay! Um, that's a memoir, which is just amazing. And I love it so much. And I picked it up because it opens with, oh, you know what? Actually, I have it over here. So I'm going to actually read you the opening. Hold on a minute. <laughs> I've read other books by Mark Saltzman, if it's the same one. Yes, probably. He wrote a book called Iron and Silk, yes. which I think is his more well-known one. Yeah. So this is actually a memoir. And the reason I picked it up, it, this, it opens this. It says, when I was 13 years old, I saw my first Kung Fu movie. And before it ended, I decided that the life of a wandering Zen monk was the life for me. I announced my willingness to leave Eastridge Junior High School immediately and give up all material things, but my parents did not share my enthusiasm. Well... I went to Eastridge Junior High School. So yes, that's how this book <laughs> fell into my hands. Cause I was like, wait a minute, 
<laughs> I went to Eastridge. You know, and it says you're the oldest child in a middle-class household in Ridgefield, Connecticut. And I was like, that's me. That's me. And so, you know, that's how I, you know, I found it because I had this personal connection to the setting. But it's this incredible memoir that I have read uh, several times and I, I read with my children. And I just, that's a book I just absolutely adore. And give us the name of the book again. It's called, it's a long title. It's called Lost in Place, Growing Up Absurd in Suburbia. And he's about, I think he's about 10 years older than I am. So it's not quite the same time frame, but um, it's it just, it's, I don't know. It's one of those books that really calls to you. Like I recommend a lot of romance novels to people. Um, and I love, I, I hate when romance novelists go on and like list their 10 best books and none of them are romances. I will never do that. But this, this is one I'd like to tell people they should pick up. Can you still immerse yourself in a book? Can you lose yourself in it? Or are you making notes along the way? Both. I mean, it really depends. I, I can lose myself in a book, but every now and then you'll, you know, read something and be like, oh, that was an awkward point of view switch. You know, I think it's easier to jolt me out, but no, I absolutely can immerse myself, mm -hmm. which, which is good. Last question. Does your mom still rearrange bookstore shelves so your books face it? My dad sure does. <laughs> my mom probably does. But I know my dad does because I've had to like caution him. I'm like, dad, you don't want to be that creepy old guy in the romance section. Okay. You need to work like, <laughs> which isn't to say men shouldn't read romance because they should, but he was out there like grabbing. He's like, have you read this one? It's really, really good. I was like, my dad, stop, stop, stop. <laughs> but yes, no, my parents absolutely do that. And I do too. Of course you do. Why wouldn't you? <laughs> Everybody does that. Oh my gosh. Yes. Julia, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. This has been so much fun. I have been speaking with Julia Quinn, author of the Bridgerton series and so many others. Check the show notes for links to the Kobo store where you'll find all of Julia's books and all of the books that we've talked about today. And you can find past episodes of Kobo and Conversation at kobo.com slash conversation. Make sure to catch every conversation by subscribing wherever you listen and leave us a review. It helps other readers to find us and gives you a chance to tell us what you'd like to hear more of. Kobo and Conversation is produced by Nathan Maharaj, edited by Kelly Robotham, and hosted by me, Michael Tamblin. Thank you for listening.